0: Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel, Editorial Assistant at the Saturday Paper, and I'm joined by Anders Furz, Editor of the Daily Review. Hello, Anders. Hello, Andy. And also co-curator of Melbourne Cinematheque and Swinburne University lecturer Eloise Ross. Hello, Eloise. Hey, Andy. In our latest look at what's happening on Melbourne cinema screens, we'll be reviewing the much-hyped Australian film Buoyancy, opening the Cultural Capital Film Diary, and sharing our top three rescue missions in film. But first, let's start with a chat about the film that's inspiring that list, James Gray's Ad Astra. This is a top secret psychological evaluation.
1: Please describe your current emotional state.
2: I'm steady, calm, ready to do my job to the best of my abilities. I will remain calm. I will remain focused. You look just like your dad there. He was the first man to the outer solar system. He was a pioneer. But there was much more to him than that.
1: Sporadic American filmmaker James Gray returns to the big screen with Ad Astra, his highest budget film to date. Brad Pitt anchors this cerebral sci-fi, playing astronaut Dr. Roy McBride. We are somewhere in the near future. Roy's father, H. Clifford McBride, Tommy Lee Jones, has gone off-piste somewhere in the vicinity of Neptune. It's been 16 years since he has communicated with anybody, but a series of surges are emanating from his last known location, causing electricity on Earth to momentarily shut down. One such surge leads to chaos in the film's opening scene, a stunningly shot sequence in which Roy navigates a power failure while performing repairs on the Earth's ginormous space antenna. After this incident, the powers at B task Roy with flying to Mars, where he can send a personalised message to his father and hopefully draw a response. We quickly discover that this stoic astronaut has some severe daddy issues. His father, fated as a hero of astronomy, was rather distant towards his son. These events occurred decades ago, but are clearly still an unexamined sore point for Roy, who begins to the film suggests, for the first time, finally process their strained relationship as he journeys first to the Moon, then Mars, and finally Neptune. Grey deploys some beautiful imagery, a quiet and subtext-free voiceover from Brad Pitt that inevitably recalls Terence Malick's use of the form, and a soft soundtrack in the service of this film, which is committed to exploring this father-son dynamic with a near laser-like thematic focus, Eloise, were you moved by these intergalactic emotions?
2: (laughs) I was so moved. I, what can I say, love a movie about a sad man. And I had several sad men in this movie to satisfy me. (laughs) Anyway, I think I will come around to some perhaps more um, cogent thoughts, but shall we just hear from Andy first?
0: Uh, Yeah, I thought this was mostly successful. Um, I... in preparation for this, I watched Gray's previous film, The Lost City of Zed, mm. which is, has a similar sort of a wide scope and real commitment to creating a, in, in, like an immersive environment. That was one of the, the strengths I thought of this was like the actual sense of realism of being on the moon and Mars as these functional workplaces with residents, which was something I don't remember seeing before and it was just so fantastically depicted. It was when it came to the emotional story, the father-son thing that I feel like the whole movie kind of ground to a halt while there was a voiceover because the film kind of generates these circ- these ways in which uh, Brad Pitt can open up. So we don't have a situation where, you know, like Ryan Gosling in First Man, who I thought was great, a lot of people found a bit cold, a bit reclusive, which is perhaps, you know, the nature of the character he was playing. But in mm-hmm. a lot of cases, 2001, your people generally are cold and not very good at communicating, but they're all very good at being astronauts. Um, in this case, we, he, he has to stop and do psych evaluations every so often, which gives him a chance to talk about his feelings. But then also on top of that we have this voiceover, which I think didn't work at all. I would love to see a version of this without the voiceover at all because I feel like he's a good enough actor to be able to communicate all this stuff without having to sit down, stop, and explain to everybody how he's feeling.
2: I really love the voiceover because you get the sense, you know, I mean he's not very good at communicating and so he's, he's required to do these psych tests and he's required to state certain things and he so seldom says the wrong thing. Um, because he just kind of holds all of it in. And so I did like these voiceovers, even though I got the sense that they were also very reserved and he was still, you know, it was a very kind of measured narration of his inner thoughts that they did assist in building his character. And I suppose not just in building his character, which, as you say, Andy, I think was communicated well enough in his face and in his acts, but just in kind of the the scenario of the entire thing, you know, going to space and mm-hmm. being this person who holds this classified information and um, is sort of trying to navigate a whole range of, of things. I, I really enjoyed the narration.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't
2: know, I thought it brought, yeah, just a richness to the film that it might not have had otherwise. Mm,
0: I thought the psych tests were enough. I felt like I got to know him really well through those sort of forced admissions of... His emotional state I
2: mean that's true But I don't think it was just about getting to know him in that sense I feel like it was bringing this other level to it I don't really know if I've thought about that quite well enough But um, in order to like define what I think it brought but.
1: Mm. Mm, Interesting It does I mean the voiceovers do contribute to what I found I guess what I resisted when I initially watched the film And what I'm now sort of maybe beginning to have second thoughts about were, But this idea that it really is all uh all in the prism of of this Brad Pitt's character and his relationship with his father. So mm. all of this space exploration, I mean I to say that it gets it gets funneled it through this relationship. Um so all of these beautiful, stunning images and like yeah. his camera work is just in like it is gorgeous mm. um to watch. But it's very Odd and kind of recalled for me um, the Christopher Nolan film Interstellar. Yes, in, yeah, yeah. In the way it channels this the vast expan- unknowingness expanse of the universe into one man's subjective, uh, deeply personal relationship, and that's what I think I had a problem with when watching the film in that it got rid of or it channeled the that sort of impersonal awe of of space into into something that felt to me completely at odds with reality, but I'm now having second thoughts about that because I cannot stop thinking about the way it did that and how just how strange it is to to see a film that interiorizes space in and uses yeah, space yeah. in in the service of this very specific um, you know emotional journey that mm. his character mm-hmm. goes on. What
2: I kind of feel is like. You know similarly to Interstellar as you mentioned And a film that's not about space But it's sort of dealing with extraterrestrials Arrival mm. And both of those films which kind of go to the Philosophical time travel sort of thing And use that intellectual voiceover in a sense Although I don't recall Arrival has one But it kind of uses that idea of time travel As mm. the interiorization of what space can mean for us Ad Astra is not about time travel, but there are of course these flashbacks and these insertions of glimpses from Brad Pitt's memory that are sometimes to much further back to his wife played by Liv Tyler, just these little kind of insertions. And then at at one point towards the end of the film, there's a flashback to a conversation with his father that occurred one hour ago. So it, it inserts those moments in a way that those time travel films would, but It's not about time travel It's just about Kind of memory And you know How you can Kind of bring Emotional um, Important things To the fore In your mind Mm. And it does so Within the same Sort of setting And I found that Really quite stunning Because It's making these things I guess Equivocal In a sense
1: Mm, Exactly right Exactly right I mean one other thing I find Really interesting About the film And it's I don't think It comes across It could so easily Feel contrived But I'm not sure that it does but my friend who i thought we've said it it reminded her of like a road movie in space which i think it's totally <laughs> does you know from leg to leg he's on this journey of discovery literally and emotionally to the point that uh we can cut this maybe but to the point where his father literally says you have to let me go yeah like, literally and emotionally it's just so um synchronized this the Matty exploration with what happens in the film and the narrative structure, he's clearly got them like so perfectly aligned. I mean, again, I sort of resisted that in that in his final monologue where he sort of just says what I took that beautiful shot of him coming out of um, that uh, crashed um, mm. pod yeah. to symbolize. Like, I got all of that, and then we got Brad Pitt essentially telling us yeah. exactly, you know, yeah. word for word again, literally with no subtext whatsoever. I am a changed man, blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, I think because the whole film operates in that mode from the outset, I didn't necessarily feel bothered by that. I just thought, okay, well, this is the way this film is is operating.
2: I mean, isn't it kind of, you know, maybe it's a little too obvious in one sense, but, you know, I mean, he is a changed man and maybe it's a little too much. But I was just struck so much by that glimpse of him in his past, Where, or we assume it's in his past perhaps where he leaves a voicemail to his wife slash ex-wife Eve and he admits with great difficulty, he admits that he didn't want her to leave. We've previously seen a flashback where she left and then immediately, so it was so difficult for him to admit this, and then immediately he so easily deletes that. From the, you know, from the voice recording. And I was kind of struck by how difficult it was for him to even do that. And then, you know, you get to this climactic moment with his father where he's really put to the test. But it's not even just that. It's the, you know, it's the couple of conversations he had earlier, like with the Ruth Neger character Mm. in Mm. Mars, where you realise that people are challenging him beyond what is kind of dutiful and beyond what is protocol and he realises that sometimes you you have to misbehave in that sense and that's what he's maybe learning to do.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, he goes on a journey. I mean, he, <laughs> go, he does go on a journey and but I think it is very smartly drawn, that journey, and, you know, it's a very, it, it's almost, I mean, it's almost too perfectly constructed. I think Brad Pitt too is central to the, the effect of, of that journey, I really dug his performance. And he, I mean, how old is he? He's like 60. 55, 55 I think. But he, yeah. he, he's so boyish. He looks in his, like a
2: boy. Isn't it Particularly in those later
1: scenes where he's communicating with uh, his dad.
2: And because he's, he's so... He's just
1: reverting back to being like a child.
2: He's so naive in his emotions. Yeah. But he's, yeah, yeah and yeah. he looks like a boy and he kind of behaves like a boy. But he's so weary as well. Yeah. You just get yeah, this yeah. sense that he has not learnt and he has not overcome, you know, these kind of bounds, that, you know, gone through these bounds that he's supposed to to be where he is, that he's just kind of so torn up inside and in the exterior as well.
0: Where do you guys sit on the tear question? The what? Well, Brad Pitt asked James Gray, there was a point in the film where he sheds a single tear. And- oh. Yeah. Brad Pitt said that it should be coming off my face because of zero gravity, and James Gray was like, "No, it's more effective if it just goes down your face."
2: I mean, I think that's true. Didn't nice didn't some people? I enjoy that moment.
1: I mean, how can explosions happen in space? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm well, not. I'm,
2: but like the emotional <laughs> resonance of that scene would not have been the same if this tear was coming off his face. Essentially, no, it and wouldn't. So, it would be like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's fine. Exactly, I think it's fine.
0: Because there were other moments. I don't know much about physics, I but I do understand that if you're deciding to stop for a, a craft that isn't responding, you, you're going to have to s- express a similar amount of energy backward to be able to stop, and it's going
1: to take a similar I mean, amount of time. I mean, it's true, so,
2: and but I wasn't thinking all of those things when I was watching. The I mean, movie. the the
1: only time I my disbelief was pushed was. When he goes through the ring of Neptune with the oh. you know, <laughs> floating through with, the, I mean, it was cool. But it, it looked awesome. It yeah. Oh, okay.
0: It was the equivalent of Orlando Bloom surfing down some stairs in Lord of the Rings, watch firing <laughs> yeah, yeah, arrows, right, basically. Right.
1: Yeah. Also, some interesting, if ultimately inconsequential, little battle things going on, like the lunar oh, yes. pirates and the space baboon. That was yes. That no one was. saw that coming. I mean, that was amazing. Yeah.
2: Research primate. Yes.
1: Sorry, the research home. primate. Yes. yes. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> that was one of the most striking Hoyt van Hoytman's like cinema, traffic graphic moments, I thought, because you've got a black sky and you've got an mm. illuminated ground. Whoa. That's like a really big cinematic thing, how you're going to represent that. And it looked yeah. amazing.
2: Yeah.
0: Looks so good. I agree.
2: Are we going to talk about Liv Tyler and Armageddon? Oh,
0: let's segue to Liv Tyler and Armageddon.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. She just has a really important part in my cinematic association of space movies and disaster. There was a lot of kind of leftover melancholy. Also dad issues. I don't know. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) I feel like I'm clutching his jaws here. (gasps) But we just, you know, I mean, Liv Tyler doesn't have a whole lot to do in this film. And I feel like that's okay because it's not like she's there, but she's not. she's underutilised because James Gray doesn't care about women. She's there essentially because... Brad Pitt doesn't know how to express emotion. So I feel like, you know, as far as it goes with underutilised women characters in movies about men doing great things, Mm. this was actually, you know, not so egregious.
1: I completely agree. And actually I think this again speaks to my, this idea of the film being so single-minded in its pursuit of Brad Pitt's journey. Because, yes, you've got the Liv Tyler character who was in it for about two and a half minutes and then you've also got... The lunar buggy fight And the, even the space baboon thing Where sort of action happens And so many people die in this movie Including mm. at the hands of Brad Pitt And there's no real but He
2: feels really sad about <laughs> it Well he feels sad about
1: many things <laughs> uh, and, But there's no real flow on Because they come their obstacles In Brad Pitt's journey And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing But I'm saying that it it does play into Grey's almost singular devotion To that journey
2: True, but did you read that interview with Brad Pitt James Gray's been essentially wanting to make this movie about Brad Pitt as a hero, I'm assuming, for about 25 years, right? Yeah, right. So maybe that kind of makes sense.
1: And that. as um, I was talking to a friend of the pod, Joe DiMatia, earlier today, and she did make the point that, you know, so many, we were talking, I was t- sort of talking about this sort of idea that it is so single minded. And she said, well, a lot of Hollywood films these days are not. That they're doing like 5 million billion tree and things. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. Like, this is. A simple story, so well told which you don't often see anymore at the multiplex.
0: Yeah, it is a very unusual film. Yeah, James Gray is really strange in that way. I don't know if you've seen. I Bro- wonder
1: how it got made. Well, yeah. In this context. Mm. Yeah,
0: particularly because you know, Lost City of Z was a big budget, ep- epic, multicontinental <laughs> film that and spanned time and failed, didn't and it all? didn't do yeah. that well. Yeah, and uh, it'd be interesting to see if he's in the awards conversation twice. Oh, and now look, this,
2: what a great, what a great double year he's had. feature yeah. for Brad Pitt mm-hmm. and. Like you know, showing off his acting. Oh, skills. once upon a time Just in both Hollywood. Of those, Sorry, once upon a time in Hollywood. Both yeah. of those performances yeah. are really, you know, I can't imagine anything else about them to make either of them better.
1: He's having a moment.
2: I know. It's I mean, he's been having a moment for a long time, but I know, but, but it's, it's very nice discovering
1: him, aren't we? Mm. Yeah, because I mean, the risk is always that you become part of the furniture. So mm. it's nice to be reminded. Uh, particularly, yeah, in this age of all this anxiety about the death of movie stars, and so we don't have loved.
2: to just keep talking about, you know, the films he made twenty years ago mm, as exactly. the peak of his. Career, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 or something like Twelve Years a Slave, you know, where he was put on the on the billboard poster, <laughs> even though he's a very minor character, because they were like, well, that's the best way to sell this is just, <laughs> just throw Brad Pitt at the front. Well, I mean, he's been doing a lot of stuff with Plan B, I guess, which is great, you know, taking a backseat and funding and yeah, he's producing. Yes, he's doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah Moonlight, yeah, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's really in a way that
1: like a lot of those people are have been doing. Like I think I've talked about this before, but Reese Witherspoon's. Mm. Journey, yeah, with Bruno Pappen, well.
0: that Melbourne, Melbourne's own Br- Bruno Papendeva, I think her producing partner is. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. yeah, Anyway, Australian connection. Yeah. Yes,
1: good stuff. Anyway, yeah, interesting. It's a film. fascinating film. Yes, I would recommend. Watching I would it, for recommend sure. it as well. Beautiful in the cinema. Show. Oh, big, definitely big cinema big yes. screen multiplex. Bigger the better.
0: Which brings us to this month's Cultural Capital Film Diary. The much-loved Melbourne Queer Film Festival is back for three days only in an event it's calling MQFF Extra, which runs from October 4th to 6th at Cinema Nova. With an opening night film like Pain and Glory and closing with one of Cultural Capital's favourite films of 2019 so far, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, they're making it extremely hard to want to leave the cinema for those three days. Alongside these big names, you can also catch Simon Amstel's romantic comedy Benjamin, Kenneth Berman's romantic drama Giant Little Ones, and a host of short films. Find out more at mqff.com.au Also at Cinema Nova is the 2019 Monster Fest, which runs from October 10 to 13. As the name suggests, Monster Fest showcases films you're unlikely to get a chance to see elsewhere, local horror film Cult Girls, in which two sisters attempt to escape a pagan cult, is screening alongside opening night film Rob Zombie's Three from Hell, and the grizzly sounding Rabbit, Harpoon and Ghost Killers vs. Bloody Mary. Find out more at cinemanova.com.au if that sounds a bit intense, you could always head along to Acme's Seniors Film Festival, which runs from October 7th to 9th at the Treasury Theatre. As usual, the Seniors Film Festival mixes the new with the classic, and this year you can see the blockbuster French comedy Sink or Swim and Mimi Leda's Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic On the Basis of Sex, alongside Fred Astaire and Ginger in Silk Stockings and Philip Noyce's iconic Newsfront. Find out more at acme.net.au. Melbourne Cinematheque has an Omano Olmi season, co-presented with the Italian Institute of Culture. It runs from October 2 to 16, and you can see some of the Italian director's better-known films like Tree of Wooden Clogs and Il Posto, as well as some of his lesser-known efforts. Find out more at MelbourneCinematech.org. Finally, the Astor Theatre will be screening Apocalypse Now Final Cut until September 28, a double bill of Harvey and The Last Weekend on a September 29, before giving all the Joaquin Phoenix you can handle with a run of The Joker almost daily until October 15. There's no excuse for not being able to answer the question that will constitute at least half of the global film conversation for the next month. So what do you think of Joker? Find out more at astrotheater.net.au
2: Releasing in Australia on September 26 after screenings at Berlin and Melbourne International Film Festival, Buoyancy was partly financed by the MIFF Premier Fund and is the feature film debut by Rod Rathjen. The press release states that it is the very first fictional feature film about the horrific real-life phenomenon of slavery on Thai fishing boats, and it aims to be worthy of that position by embedding it with an emotional rawness and a documentary-like realism. As a narrative. Buoyancy follows 14-year-old Chakra, played by Sam Heng, who travels from rural Cambodia to Bangkok to work in a factory. From here, he is sold as a slave and imprisoned at sea, torn down by harsh conditions on a fishing boat. It's received many accolades so far. Anders, how did you find it?
1: Uh, Well, it's a very tense film, and I think a lot of its success does come down to this magnetic central performance from... Sam Heng as this teenage boy who is driving for something more for himself. So as the film begins, he and his family, he's sort of... what he's fertilising rice crops. Basically, he gets paid with, like, rice for dinner and, like, a bed to sleep in. And that's about it. Very impoverished life in rural Cambodia. So he, he wants to get paid for his work. Uh, and so he decides to, as you say, go and what he... He thinks he's being taken to a factory, but instead he ends up on this Thai fishing boat. Um, Rathjan deploys this observational style in sort of capturing all of these events that I think really suits this material. And the events mostly, I think with a couple of exceptions, don't feel completely contrived. And uh, as that release says, and I agree with it, you almost do feel like you're watching a documentary. It's got, it's got a real realism to it, um, particularly all of these scenes on the boat. Yeah, he's an interesting character, Heng. He's smart. Um, Heng's character, he's smart. And he's put into this awful position of being the sort of sadistic ship captain sort of favourite on the boat, being ushered under his wing, despite the fact this is a guy who doesn't think twice about throwing people uh, overboard, wrapped in heavy chains, all of that kind of stuff. So, look, it's very worthwhile material, particularly thinking as Australian um, audiences and as a film that has been funded through Australian filmmaking systems um, and just thinking about our position in the region. And as the film's end title suggests, an estimated 200,000 people are enslaved in the contemporary Thai fishing industry, which is not happening very far away from us here where we're watching it. So the director said his goal in making the film was to raise awareness. And on that level, I think he's wildly succeeded. If ultimately it is rather predictable but it's it's well made and i was very grateful the film did not end the way i was expecting it to instead he took a, a different um different approach right in the final shot which i very much appreciated because i was about to start groaning and then i didn't <laughs> i was like oh you know what yeah good uh what did you think Addie?
0: um i guess i've got a pretty different take i actually okay. thought it was quite cinematic and it was almost so well shot and lawrence english's score was so moody that it kind of almost overwhelmed the content, I thought, but I didn't really mind because it is, you know, it's very well shot. It's like the beautiful overhead shots of the boat. There's a lot of shots of fish, <laughs> like tiny fish. The fact that they're mm-hmm. not even catching fish that people eat—it's like for dog food—is yeah. interesting. And it's not a sustainable fishing practice, no. <laughs> and it's not a sustainable employment practice either. With this um, throwing people overboard sort of tendency of the sadistic ship's captain which i thought really undermined it i was like this feels much more like a plot development i don't understand why someone would be so willing to just kill people Yes, I agree. <laughs> and I
1: knew that his friend and mentor was in trouble. Yeah. Similarly. well, like a... As soon as they established that bond, I was like, oh, he's not going to survive very long. Yeah. So it, it sort of becomes like one by one. It is, yeah, and it's a weird
0: off. thing to do. Yeah, 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 I agree. Anyway, but, yes, sure. Okay, so if he's this particular captain is especially sadistic and psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, you know, yeah, you're right, His face, the face of Sam Hing is, is remarkable. Like he's just so impassive, he's slow to respond, he's starting to, have, like, you just really, really empathise with him. But the fact that the whole thing is driven by the fact that he wants he's 14 years old and he wants his dad to pay him for the work he's doing, so there's this whole capitalistic trigger for him to leave to get paid 8,000 baht a month to work in a factory in Bangkok, which is what he thinks is going to happen, and then he winds up on this boat.
2: Is it capitalistic so, or is it about... Like just general, you know, civil human rights. More. Well, exactly. I mean,
1: I mean, his dad said he says, you know, I should be paid for my work, and the dad's like, well, you're getting a bed and mm. rice for dinner. What more do you want? Mm. Um, but I, I mean, surely he wants more. Like, I, it's a completely understandable why he wants to leave those awful conditions. I mean, he devolves into even worse conditions. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. He, I think it was a completely justifiable decision. Like you, um, I mean, you can't.
0: Partly, but everybody around him's okay with it. I mean, this whole not going to be that way forever. It's just because he's fourteen. I think I got the impression that once he's older, like his older brother, yeah. who he's going to work for at some mm. point, and so maybe he thinks he's going to be exploited in a similar way, or he feels exploited for good reason. Mm. But maybe he thinks his older brother, who's going to start a business, is going to employ him and exploit him mm. in the same way. Mm. So yeah, that's un- totally understandable because I guess that's not happening to his friend who is also planning to move to Bangkok with for a while. I thought there was a huge amount of talent on all sides in this film. I thought it was great, really, really well shot, well paced. Um, if some of the storyline felt a bit clunky sometimes, I, it's, you know, it's a really good reason to make a film. I'm really glad we funded it because for a while I thought, okay, this is actually a really interesting humanization of human trafficking because even with the sadistic captain, at the beginning at least, I was like, oh, he's obviously under this whole same capitalistic pressure that everyone else is where they have to like... You know haul up tons of this inedible fish to make you know pet food for westerners. but then when it started taking these turns I was like, oh, I don't know if I can quite yeah I agree ca- I yeah, agree go like along it, with it as, it, as I it was
1: c- it possibly could have benefited from some more expir- further exploration of those sort of broader structures that are governing why they're like why is he sadistic or why is there a reason yeah,
0: well there's that and also there's a language barrier I think between them. This, like he's yeah. the, this Thai and Cambodian, and so I think yeah. there's probably some sort of other cultural stuff there we, I didn't quite pick up on.
1: Um, but you're right, there was some really cool. There's some really cool imagery, including that uh, I really was struck by that. The sort of key moment for the main character where he sort of decides to you know take action, and the shot of him sort of coming to this realization, <laughs> surrounded by these fish that are like flopping yeah, all yeah, over, yeah. like just being hauled in. That was kind of remarkable.
0: It actually reminded me of a film we talked about previously on the podcast, Emil Corton Wilson's Ruin. Same. Same. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I say same. I didn't see the (laughs) film in case that's not clear, but I was reading about it. I wanted to bring this up, Andy, because you mentioned the music being somewhat overbearing, and i read it oh, no art- it was good it was
0: atmospheric it was kind of like one thing he was right. very very good at making that mood Because so- i read an article
2: mm. in the sydney morning herald on the weekend written yeah. by stephanie bunbury it was a, a review of the film and an interview with rasjan uh, the director who mm-hmm. said that he doesn't like when films have music that like direct the emotion and just kind of you know try and tell the listener what to think and that he the a quote he gave i really liked he said i just wanted to have the film breathe with the music. Mm, and I said, That's yeah. a really beautiful mm. quote and i'm i would like to hear the music and well to see the well, film Well it's,
0: yeah, it's it's quite integrated into the sound design the which design. i thought was really good. Um okay. it's like it's just kind of big tones. It's almost a weird almost like an urban noir kind of score more than anything because it's all about creating this sense of dread and mm-hmm. tension because you're in this confined space on this boat people are dying there's like you know, no one's having a good time. And he's really, really good at that. And so I thought Lawrence English did a great job. But it is kind of if you would listen to the score, it's going to be like a lot of very similar motifs. I think. Okay. Which I don't think is a bad thing. I think mm. it's just what what he did and what the film benefits from.
1: Yeah, yeah interesting film. Uh, yeah. So that comes out this, this Thursday. This yeah. Thursday. Yes. This Thanksgiving, the toys are back in town. Woody
2: saves the day again.
1: And just trying to get home. It isn't a real rescue without Buzz Lightyear. In one piece.
0: (laughs) Um, And so we're going to close out this particular episode with our top three rescue missions in film, which is, of course, inspired by Ad and Brad Pitt's sad journey to Neptune.
1: I'm excited. We haven't had a top
0: three in a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been months and months, actually. And so there are a lot of different ways you can see rescue missions. There's um, people trying to rescue family members, as we saw. There's people trying to rescue um, animals, astronauts. There's all sorts of stuff. Uh, themselves. Themselves from themselves. <laughs> yes. Um, Anders, could I begin by asking you, what you how you approach this and what you considered for your top three?
1: Uh, so I was quite hard, actually, because I wanted to sort of branch out from well-made American action films, which could easily... Be this whole list so i've included them there as well but um i've also gone a little bit more esoteric uh great in, <laughs> in think maybe too esoteric i don't know uh <laughs> but um in thinking about the process of recovery of of going on mm-hmm. a mission and what separates a search and recovery from something that can have far more deadly consequences sure mm. Okay, great. And what did you put at number three? So my number three can be seen as the daddy of this genre in many (laughs) respects. It is Die Hard. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, There's so much to love about this film. Um, Its distinct setting, the Nakatomi Plaza skyscraper. Its distinct time, uh, Christmas. And its distinct hero, Bruce Willis, in a singlet in his defining role. Um, I find comfort viewing, actually, and I watch it every... Uh, yeah, what for Christmas? It's it a regular a Christmas, Christmas yeah, 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 hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. This and Carol, great double. This and Die Hard number, number two,
2: actually. I just want to interject and say that I watched Clueless last week and Clueless is a Christmas movie. Clueless oh, is it? Christ- it is too. Anyway. Why don't people not talk about this t- more? This is PSA, great. Clueless <laughs> is a Christmas movie. Oh, my
1: God. I love the Christmas movie discussion <laughs> so much. Is it, are we in November yet? Almost. <laughs> um, all of that aside, it's comfort viewing. The screenplay is so sharp. Oh, God, it's good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The dialogue, the action, There's not a wasted minute and just Bruce's relationship with, you know, the ineffectual cops, all of that kind of stuff, his wife. The action is just so well shot. I love Alan Rickman's oh campy my performance. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, it all just kind of works. On all of these just, I guess, technical levels and on the level of an entertaining uh, search and rescue film, it is, you know, up there as as one of the greatest action films, I think. American yeah, I'd say the best.
0: Anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's my number 27 of all time. Yeah, oh. but his and Bonnie Bedelia's relationship, I feel like, just sets this above every other thing in the genre. Yeah, I agree. Because ostensibly he's meant to be rescuing these hostages, but then really it's actually so, about so much more. It's about a man trying to save his, his marriage. <laughs> it's about all this other stuff. And when Rickman starts walking around talking like he's just he's come from a classics lecture at Oxford University, it's just genius. It is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And And the backstory to this film is phenomenal as well. That, like, Frank Sinatra was meant to play that. that, I didn't know that. Well, it's actually a sequel to a 60s film. Yeah, did you? Yeah, right. (laughs) Because he had had to say no to it because it was a sequel to some film he'd started in, like, the mid 60s. And so it was meant to be. Willow School was only going to play if Frank Sinatra said no. And Frank was like, Yeah, I don't think I should play this role. Um,
1: (laughs) Anyway, that's Die Hard. Fantastic choice. Hello.
2: Um, well, my number three is "The Man Who you Knew Too Much" by Alfred Hitchcock from 1956, oh. which is so. I don't know if I've done this properly. Anyway, you can all poo poo my choice in So,
0: who's rescuing who in this film?
2: So this, I mean, well, this is the quasi remake of Hitchcock's own film from 34, starring Peter Lorre. This film is about James Stewart and Doris Day who need to rescue their son.
1: It's oh, a clear-cut okay.
2: rescue narrative. And their son gets kidnapped and they don't know who kidnapped him and so they like they're in Morocco and then they go to England to London to find the son. I don't know how they find out that he's there, but anyway they do. And on the way they also rescue I think the Prime Minister of I don't know Denmark maybe because they go to this opera performance with this orchestra and it's this fantastic sequence. Oh it's yes, very tense. You know, in um, Royal is yeah. it in Royal Albert Hall? Mm-hmm. And they watch an orchestra and there is this behind the scenes talk that someone is going to shoot this Prime Minister of Denmark or whatever it is at the big symbols clash. And then at that symbols clash, Doris Day screams. And so her voice kind of interrupts this assassination. What I essentially love about this is that it is a rescue mission film and the thing that achieves the goal of rescuing the sun and also, you know, this politician is Doris Day's voice. So she screams and foils the assassination and then later on, you know, in that very famous sequence, she sings Ke Sarasara in an embassy house and unbeknownst to her, I think her son is upstairs and he whistles back and then they find out that he's there and they rescue him. There's a lot of incredible, I mean, you know, like so many Hitchcock films, set pieces in this film and it just, I've seen it quite a few times and I think it is really, you know, really incredibly well made and affecting. That's my number three. Great choice. Rescue Mission films.
0: I'm so glad we got a Hitchcock in here. Oh, good. (laughs) Uh, My number three uh, is uh, not a Hitchcock film. Um, When Carmen and Junie's parents, Ingrid and Gregorio Cortez, are captured by Alan Cummings' criminal mastermind, Floop, the kids have to go on the road and become spy kids. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Robert Rodriguez's spy kid caper. I really, really thought this was (laughs) should get a mention because it's a great example of... um, Sheer visual ingenuity, this film is like full yes. of crazy things. It's like it's like living in a bowl of candy or something. It's so bonkers and over the top. And all the adults behave like children and all the and the children kinda of have to become adults and say their parents. And it's just it's just kind of like ludicrous situation after ludicrous situation. And I really, really like this because the kids were just just felt like they'd never been near a Disney studio before. So they're like actually seem normal and they speak, you know, yeah. in this really unaffected way. Yeah. And that was kind of what Really, really set it apart, as well as the really great screenplay and just the sense of fun and the kinetic energy in this film is really, really great um there's just a lot to like about it, and also you know it's also about like a family reunion, and that's a really big motivating factor, which I think is probably true for quite a few of the films we'll talk about um but in this case, it just felt <laughs> it was just so much fun. I really really liked it have you you're familiar with this I yes I
1: remember. I don't wanna make myself sound like an embryo, but I think I was a kid when that film came yeah, out. Yeah, it was like two
0: thousand early two thousands, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: teenager then. Um yeah, mm. yeah. I and I remember <laughs> loving it. Uh, he he uses great three D. Is that in that one or is that in the C? That's a later one, yeah. I Only think it's, it's my kids three D. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. but
0: in this one there's like almost no CGI at all. It feels very tactile. Yeah, there's lots of gadgets. It's very good at that. Full of gadgets. the whole thing is just like gadget after gadget. It's yeah, it's really cool. But it's also, also at a kid's level, but also Adults are bringing themselves down actually to this kid's level. love stuff. to re-watch it, Andy. It's kind of fun. I watched, watched it again today.
1: Yeah, um, I'm dying to watch his uh, film from earlier this year, Alita Battle Angel. Yes, yeah, so am I. I. I feel like this is a big black that. spot yeah. for all of us, actually. Yeah. Mm. yeah.
2: All right, let's make it a cold, cap a cold cup hangout place. night.
0: Great. Watch uh, along with us at home.
1: Yeah, watch we'll along. We'll tweet. We'll tweet. Through <laughs> through the journey. Uh, no, that's disrespecting the film. Um, <laughs> okay, my number two is john carpenter's escape from la oh really <gasps> and I, Cool. yes i'm prefacing this by saying i haven't actually seen escape from new york which everybody says is a much better film everybody except john carpenter i will have you know who says this is quote 10 times better so there you go sure. but i had to mention this camp classic starring kurt russell and if anybody was going to be the face of the search and rescue film kurt russell i think would be a contender Um, Anyway, this is a really intriguing retro-futuristic vision of the 2010s, wherein Los Angeles is is a walled-off island of decadence and decay, and the theocratic American president deports those of insufficient moral purity to the island. Enter Kurt Russell Snake, who has been arrested and due to be exiled to LA. The president makes him an offer. Recover this superweapon that his brainwashed daughter currently on the island possesses and he will receive a pardon for his crimes. And to ensure Snake's full cooperation, the president injects him with a poison that will kill him in 10 hours. That is, unless he succeeds in his retrieval mission, in which case he'll be given the antidote. I love this film. It's so weird and so full of funny pointed sequences with satire that is so like, completely bizarrely insanely relevant to the current moment. Um, some 25 years after it was made. There are so many banana sequences, but I really want to especially mention the scene where Snake meets a burned out Peter Fonda and they both both surf a tsunami.
2: Oh, my God, I want to see that. (laughs) You need to
1: watch. You can just watch this clip on YouTube. It's so good. (laughs) And Peter Fonda's like, it's a tsunami snake getting quick, man, because you ain't got no time to get out of here. Bitchin', man. <laughs> and then there's, like, surf guitar, and they surf these massive waves while Steve Buscemi drives by <laughs> in a red convertible. What? It's so... That's incredible. How is it It's incredible. It's really this incredible. In- it's, oh. I know, I know. It's such a good movie. Pam Greer is amazing in it, too, in a supporting role. Cool. All these amazing um, actors and just bonkers action set pieces that are really well made. But, yeah, and also with this edge of satire that feels, like, really resonant in a similar way to, you know, uh, Southland Tales, that kind of portrait of LA. Yeah, so um, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of in the same vein. All well, that film's in the same vein of this one because this one predates it by about ten years. So, yeah, I, um, I'm i a big fan. That's my number two. Great choice. Peter Fonda alone. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, my next choice is Ball of Fire the Howard Hawks film from 1941. So the setup is that there's these eight kind of, you know, fuddy-duddy old men who are writing an encyclopedia and Gary Cooper plays one called Bertram Potts (laughs) and he is writing the entry on slang and so he goes around and tries to find out what some of the street slang is and then he finds Barbara Stanwyck who plays Sugar Puss O'Shea um, singing in a nightclub.
1: This is your Twitter name. This is my Twitter name. This is where it all comes from. This is where it all comes from. Sugar Puss O'Shea
2: um, from Ball of Fire. And so she sings this song called Drum Boogie and it's fucking so good. Anyway, so he writes down Drum Boogie and then, like, tries to put it in his encyclopedia. Anyway, essentially Sugar Puss O'Shea is a gangster's mole and she's engaged to this guy called Joe Lilac. But then she gets in trouble and so because Joe Lilac is in trouble with the cops, and so she seeks refuge in this house, you know, where these eight fuddy-duddy old men live. And it's supposed to be a rescue mission by Joe Lilac and his gangster friends to rescue Sugar Puss O'Shea from the house. But at some point in the middle it switches tack and becomes a different kind of rescue mission when Sugar Puss falls in love with Gary Cooper's character and the new goal becomes to rescue her from the gangsters. Um, and bring her back to the house so it has a couple of different things going on here I mean of course you know the not so subtle suggestion is that Sugar Puss will in fact rescue Gary Cooper from the house and marry him and you know they'll go away forever Um, however there are so there are a couple of things going on here there is some action there's great fashion there's (laughs) my babs of course Who I love. So anyway, this I would I would put in the rescue mission category. Sounds great.
0: Is she the titular ball of fire?
2: Yes. Right. She
0: is. Um, I'm going to stay in a similar sort of era with my number two, which is uh, not a rescue film in itself, but a film about a rescue mission and how one is can be exploited by the media at the expense of the people involved. And that is Billy Wilder's 1951 film Ace in the Hole. Ooh. Because you know, being a journo, it's (laughs) something film that I readily associate. With um, so it's about Kirk Douglas, and he plays this uh, ex-big city tabloid journo who's kind of stuck in this um, backwater Albuquerque newspaper, and there happens to be a um a mine collapse, and so this suddenly becomes this global, this like national story. And so he kind of goes in and begins to try and, you know, exploit the family connections and contacts the guy, you know, who can he can hear when he goes into the mine shaft. And gradually, outside, this literal circus starts building of people who just want to come and look at this tragedy unfold. Uh, there's like a Ferris wheels, There's people selling food. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Families turning up, um, and uh, everyone's kind of got this very selfish uh, connection with it. Um, but Billy Wilder just basically keeps this. Um, film t- telling a big, much bigger story about the state of media and the state of the of, of like American culture, essentially. And so it's an extremely bitter film, um, but also really funny, really well written, really well acted. And this rescue mission kind of ends up becoming this this sort of story about how humanity is just kind of exploited to the nth degree by um, people such as Kirk Douglas's journalist. Um, and I just thought it was really, really great angle on rescue missions, um, even if it's not a rescue mission film itself.
2: I would call it a rescue mission film. I mean, you know, we're defining it ourselves, and That's true. We I guess have we are, the power. Yeah. I love that film. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's,
2: it's so brutal. Yeah. It's it's really draining. You know, you might not think that it is, but but mm. it is. When you sit with it for two hours and just get to that point. Oh,
0: but Yeah, it's such a trip. It's a great film. And you you seen it? I
2: have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I agree. Good. Yeah, right. yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. Cool. I was just going to say, you know, you're an editor of a Magazine, now you have to see this stuff. I know, I know. <laughs> um, cool, Kirk Douglas, mm. 103 years old.
1: Uh, shout out to Kirk Douglas, mm. I, Andy. You've inspired me to swap around my honorable mention no. of my number one <gasps> because my number one, my newfound number one, <gasps> has Kirk Douglas. So that's why. So we'll keep Kirk Douglas momentum. And this is a film I only saw for the first time two weeks ago, but I'm I can't stop thinking about it. It's Brian De Palma's 1978 film The Fury.
2: Oh, my God, how good is The Fury? It's
1: so good. Yes. It's so good. And Kirk Douglas <laughs> plays this hilarious guy who's um, basically his son is psychic and Kirk Douglas's character is involved with the CIA in some way and there's this sort of meeting in the Middle East that goes awry and he he basically loses his son to this, like, group of people who are like training psychic people to, you know, do bad things. And so the film follows Kirk Douglas's character as he tries to break out his son from this cult. Concurrently, they're also trying to get this teenage girl Jillian uh, who's got discovering that she has psychic powers too. So you've got these two narratives going on. The Kirk Douglas is so hilarious in this film in such a weird, interesting role like sort of the main the bulk of the film's following this Gillian story and then we cut to these sort of Kirk Douglas adventures with Kirk as he's going around try you know putting on disguises pretending to be an old man i mean he he's very good looking for like 60 i think he's like 60 or something in this film but he's <laughs> he's very good anyway so he He puts on all these hilarious disguises and tries to get closer to this cult to try and, like, free his son. Anyway, it all ends up in this crazy, hilarious final scene and the final image is, like, crazy. It'll stick with you. That's my number one. Honourable mention to Bertrand Bruneo's Nocturama, which is... So good. ...such a fantastic film, and the second half of which follows a police operation Um, much as a search and rescue film would. However, in this case, it's the exact opposite. And basically they, I mean, you've got to see, if you haven't seen the film, see it. But basically things, you're left in no doubt who has the real power in contemporary French society and it's not these teenage rebels. So Mm. it is Mm -hmm. quite... Shocking, really, what happens in the film. and just Kind of th-
2: like, you know, it's. Got, I mean, it's got a similar kind of like deflating ending, I suppose, to um, Ace in the mm. Hole.
1: Oh, right. Sure. Yeah. You know,
2: where yeah, yeah, you're yeah, just yeah. like, oh, shit, you know, mm. actually stuff does suck. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Anyway, yeah, mm. so I think it's on Netflix and I'm really... Um, I really recommend it if you haven't seen it. It's it so unsettling.
2: I think it was in my top five a couple of years ago. Or yeah. at least in my top ten yeah. it was. You yeah. definitely mentioned it before, yeah. Yeah, one mm. of my yeah. highlights of, of, of late.
0: So I think it earns a
1: cold <clears throat> cap recommends. Mm. It, oh, Alongside Embrace of the Serpent. Mm. Mm. It's almost like yeah. post Search and Rescue. Mm. And i wonder what, and I think it says, inter- that, that change says interesting things about um, the role of state power in the 21st century. Mm.
2: Um, well, to like get back to you know ye oldy boring Eloise's.
1: Choices. <laughs> Hang on, um,
2: <laughs> what
0: is your most modern film in this top three, Elo?
2: <laughs> this is well, <laughs> um, 1951. Maybe? I've already already mentioned it. Um, my number one. Uh, this was. This, pretend there's no order to this. this okay. is just, just at the bottom of my <laughs> word document. Is King Kong. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> of course. such a good choice. Yes. From 1933. I love it. I mean, oh. this is, you know, it's a, it's a saving the damsel in distress narrative. Like, no doubt about it. You know, it's one of the classics. Um, and that is, you know, kind of what I was trying to avoid, I guess, in this, like, rescue mission category was just doing all saving the damsel in distress. And I don't think I've done any of them, although you could argue that, both films could be read that I've mentioned before could be read in that way. So this is an RKO film from 1933. If you haven't seen it, you absolutely must. It is so much better than the what's his face version of Peter Teen- Jackson. Yeah.
1: How does it compare, though, to Kong Skull Island? Oh, good question. Oh, I didn't see that. Ooh, well, that's very interesting. Mm. It's
2: got lots of miniatures in it, and I fucking love miniatures, so I can say <laughs> yeah. it's it's better immeasurably because of the miniatures. We all know the story of King Kong and that the men, you know, they're intent on saving Anne, played by Fay Wray in this version, um, and that that famous last line, you know, it wasn't the airplanes, it was beauty killed the beast, is actually... You know, it's poetic, sure, but it's actually wrong. You know, the idea is that the men who wanted to control him and control the women in their society led to the Kong's yeah. demise. You know, that's the narrative. So the the idea is here that the men weren't actually saving Fayre from anybody, and that they carried out their rescue mission um, ill-advisedly and they didn't have necessarily... They weren't clear thinking. They were just obsessed with their own masculinity and shit. I mean, I feel like it's not necessarily essential to the narrative and there is an element of me being aware that perhaps I'm reading into it. But I do think that even in 1933, in this film that is essentially like a pretty classic, you know, studio picture, that there is an element there of these men being criticised for their actions and that, you know, the uh, suggestion is that rescue missions should not take place necessarily Mm. in that classic sense. Mm, Yeah,
0: that is interesting. I love it so much. Did you have any honourable mentions?
2: Picnic Hanging Rock is a nice option of a really static rescue mission that doesn't go well at all. And that that's kind of like a really nice take on, mm. you know, the genre mm. as it is. Yeah, that's narrative. a great choice. Mm. Mm. Anyway, cool. Picnic at Hanging Rock.
0: Well, my number one is uh, I've gone with a single film, but I could have gone with an entire series. It's Toy Story. Every single film is a rescue mission, essentially, and all of them are, like, not only a a rescue mission of, like, trying to save a toy or reunite a family as they are, you know, even though they're not related in that traditional sense... But it also just brings in every single major philosophical question you might have, like what is the purpose? What is my purpose? What do I do? Why is why life? Why is life? Is essentially like the big question of Toy Story Four. But I think it hit its peak at Toy Story Two, which is my particular what I'm singling it's out. My
2: favorite too. Yeah, we introduced
0: we're introduced to Jessie. We're given like Woody is uh, injured Sarah and McLaughlin.
1: then Sarah oh, McLaughlin. Yeah, well, yes, nice one. <laughs> um,
2: Needed to win the Oscar. No. I will never shut up about that. please, fucking um, Phil Collins.
1: I don't know what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> oh, the music. The, okay. <laughs> yeah. Sarah McLaughlin would have, Oh, yeah. I would love to see her win an Oscar. Um, yeah, Joan Cusack, what a great voice! Out, out. I mean, there's so many things to love about this whole series, but this particular, I think, Toy Story 2, or maybe it's because of the first one I saw, but I think it still stands up the best. Uh, it's basically the premise is that Woody is uh, stolen by a toy collector and then the toys decide to go and rescue him. And so there's a lot of, like, nail-biting escapes and close calls and this sort of stuff. But at the same time... It just managed to bring in so many things, uh, so many bigger issues and deal with them in such an intelligent way that you barely notice it unless you kind of pause or you reflect on it afterwards because it's such a a well-paced thrill ride of a film. It has aged quite well visually. Um, The effects, I think, in Toys, the original one, you know, it's impossible to go back into a remaster because you kind of would have to remake the entire film. Um, but also I think Toy Story 2 is just is just so well-paced. It's full of s- twists and surprises and so many other things, so many other aspects of this series have become a bit cliche now that they were obviously working against that when Toy Story 4 came out. Um, but I just think it's top tier. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find a fault with it really.
2: Honourable mention, Andy?
0: Honourable mentions. Uh, I very nearly went with Apocalypse Now. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. For obvious reasons. Um, it feels like... Even if it came out in, like, 79, it still feels like the grandfather of all rescue mission films. Does it feel like The Godfather?
2: No! No. (laughs) (laughs) We both did it! Jigs, jigs. (laughs) Yes, it
0: does. (laughs) Um, Apollo 13, I thought was a great example of people pulling together, as our Prime Minister reminded of us recently. It's his favourite film. Is Uh, it? Yeah. ScoMo. ScoMo's favourite film because it's people putting aside their differences to work together for a singular goal. Oh, so nice. Which is just so full of irony. I wanted to smash myself <laughs> in the face with something heavy. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I haven't seen Saving Private Ryan, but I
1: gather that's a very good Rescue Mission film too. I that's wrong. You cool. heard it here first. Um, I almost said snatched. Not really. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so good. Whoa. For those of you who might not remember, snatched is what I made Andy and Anders come and see when... Something much more serious was sold out <laughs> at Westgarth one day and we reviewed it on the pod. Look, <laughs> anyway. It's always
0: good to have a
1: reference point.
2: It
1: is. <laughs> Cinema is a very expansive medium. There's yeah. Many films.
2: Many that are worthy films. of conversation, <laughs> <laughs> Or just many films. Many films. Look, we're, we're
0: an open book <laughs> <the> cultural <Council>. capital. <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes Interesting Great uh, theme Andy Thank you for suggesting
0: Thanks for everything um, Editor no, Anders Furs
1: Producer Andy
0: yes. Thank you And that awkwardly brings us To the end of episode 65 <laughs> Of Cultural Capital <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening Please rate, review and subscribe You can follow us on Facebook And Instagram At Cultural Capital Podcast We're on Twitter At the Cult Cap Pod. You can find me At Andy Ricky.
1: I'm at Anders Furs
2: I'm at Eloise Lowe-Russ
1: And... we We think think you're great